Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. People often ask me how I ended up being a futurist, and I tell them that it helps that I was once a failed lawyer. <laughs> and uh, I, I've always been intrigued by the legal profession, uh, even though I didn't, uh, I didn't stay long at it. But was this something that you yourself, you know, knew at the time that other people wanted to be firemen and astronauts? You, did you know you wanted to be a, a lawyer? Well, I, I wanted to be basically pragmatic and to, to do, <laughs> to, to do uh, stuff that is going to ensure me with a proper living. Yeah? So that's, that's, that's the reasoning uh, behind it. But on the other hand, we might say that I failed to be an IT specialist. Yeah? The, the <laughs> IT business is something what actually triggers much more of my interest than the legal business, but that's how life is. So then, I ended up being a lawyer. This is the interesting thing about the time we're in is that no one has a pure job anymore, that, that everything is hybridized, you know, with technology and data. And that what excites me right now, actually, because uh, we can go out of the shoes of a, a legal advisor, tax advisor, so, and we can go into the directions that were closed some years ago. So you now have a mixture of providing services that are a combination of legal and tax. So you are working with IT people, you do stuff, that is, from my perspective, fascinating right now. I'm having a coffee in Warsaw today. It's a beautiful sunny day and I'm with Piotr Spaminski, who's the founder of SSW, uh, which is one of the most innovative and interesting law firms in Europe right now. Thank you for that. We are attempting to, to, to be one, yes, and we are still <laughs> not there, but... Uh, well, not, not many law firms are, you know, are not like... Uh, Clyde and Clifferton or like, you know, you, having an acronym already suggests you're more of a tech business. We, that's what we see. So we, we see that uh, actually providing purely the legal advice or to say a PhD thesis to the client, this is no longer what the business is like. The word is changing. The expectations of the clients are changing. They want to have solutions and not a long debate from your side, yeah, how your academic skills look like. It, it was actually the, you know, the encroaching impact of technology and automation in the legal industry that partly inspired my most recent book, The Algorithmic Leader, because, you know, I was watching in the profession that I had originally thought of joining, things like e-discovery and contract analysis and legal AI starting to change the role of lawyers. And, and it made me think, Will there still be lawyers in the future? I mean, part of me was almost hoping there weren't going to be. But, but then I actually realized that these technologies that people thought were going to destroy jobs were actually changing jobs and actually potentially increasing the amount of legal work that was required. Yeah, we see it, especially from, from a local CE perspective. We see that the demand for legal services is somehow limited, limited by the access of uh, clients to the service. Some people are, are afraid that it's just too costly to contact the lawyer, or they are afraid that they are not able to explain their problem to the lawyer. So now, in my opinion, having the technology, which is enabling you to do the first step, it might trigger some more demand for the legal services. So you have the first step. It's like this Uber experience. Yeah, Let's have a 
Uber experience in the legal industry. You just open an app, you just upload your documents, you describe your problem, and then you have some initial interaction. Yeah, go forward, not go forward. If you go forward, you might then get in touch with, a, let's say, human lawyer. So I think these um, hurdles for using lawyers will be limited. So in this field, we might have a bigger demand. Yeah. I mean, the, the Uber example is interesting um, from a demand perspective, because if you were prior to Uber to say, what is the total potential market for being driven around in a car, you would just probably take all the existing chauffeur businesses and, and add it up together. But what we didn't ask was, if we were to democratize and liberalize access to being driven around, what would that then look like? And probably the same thing is with law. Like, we don't really know what the global market for legal services is until with technology we can liberalize it. Yeah, well, that's that's so true. But then there's the next step. Yeah, with Uber, when you have when you have autonomous car, yeah, you will not have a driver there. So, is there an analogy to the legal business? I think it is. So, yeah, the, the, this uh, tasks that are the most simple, more repetitive, will be certainly substituted with uh, technology. So the machines will tell, take these tasks. So in this field, we will have. A smaller number of jobs. Things like contract analysis have been one of the features that people have been talking about for some years. But it, some of these solutions are actually not as good as they need to be. Like, well, what's sort of going wrong at the moment? Are they, is, is it because they're being designed by technical people, not really legal specialists? In some scope, I think it's the case. The the solutions I, I had to I had a chance to see on the market. Some of the solutions are too slow. Some of the solutions are not flexible. So they're you, just like you, search engines. For you, you cannot customize it, which right. is uh, pretty frustrating for the clients or for the users. And then what's the, of the key importance is what's the data in the system. Obviously, you cannot see how the AI works, yeah, but you have influence on how to teach the machine. You would like to have influence. Some of the solutions do not give this influence. So you basically uh, are relying on data that is asserted by somebody else. If these are technologies, then it's a big problem, yeah. So I think the key importance here is one is the engine for it to be quick and accurate, and then the data. And the data is going to be <laughs> something what can gives you a leverage uh, towards other solutions on the market. Well, you know, on the on the algorithm itself, I mean, you don't just want a glorified search engine. You need something that understands the sort of the semantic relationships between people. Like, I mean, if you just, you know, are doing a global word search on the en Enron email database, it would give you one set of results. But if you were able to map the social networks and understand who talks to who and on why and what subjects, you'd probably be able to even understand secret codes that people were using or what was actually going on. That's definitely the case. So I think uh, if, if we have that data, then we can also increase the accuracy of the prediction systems. Yeah. Right. So then you will be truly able, this is already happening, we have uh, the prediction uh, software and some software is al already pretty successful like uh, Blue Jay from Toronto, this is, is even used by the tax authorities. So this is happening, now then we are bumping into another matter which is quite new and I would say it's like uh, ethics, yeah? so yeah. you need to decide whether you want to go that far with the prediction uh, business. So. 
uh, allowing machine to tell you which lawyer to pick for your case and then if you have a chance which court to go to so if you choose this court and this lawyer your chance of success let's say is 95 percent yeah if i were the client i would love a system like this yes because i'm how, how i'm maximizing though? i'm maximizing the chance of yeah. success yeah I mean, but how, how is this unethical though because this is already the job of a top law firm is to actually tell you whether you're wasting your time or not yeah, well, and this is a great question because in some circumstances, when the client comes to the law firm, he expects you to be able to tell him what are his odds for a given case, yes, or what are the chances for success, then uh, what strategy to use, yes. Obviously, if you need any other lawyers, he is rely, relying on your experience that you'll tell him, okay, we need somebody else. And then if you have a choice of venue, so choosing a court, he will be relying on you to, to recommend uh, it from your side. So I think uh, this is happening in a, in a human uh, way of providing service. But then when we are coming to technology, there are groups that are saying, no, 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 we are going too far. We can't be doing this. This is unethical, yeah? So now the question is, where's this thin line which is the border yeah how, how far we can go or whether at all we shall be limiting it or not well france i believe was one of the first places in the world to ban um algorithmic legal prediction is that right? yeah, yeah europe is 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 great in in not inventing big technology but is great in regulating technology, banning it, prohibiting, or, or even ta uh, introducing a new taxation system for the digital entities. So that's the way. So the France simply said, okay, we don't want this prediction analysis. This is just going too far. Our legal system is fine, so go away. We don't want it. I mean, ironically, in some ways, it probably would have it's probably more important in France and other places because of, especially in the criminal system where you've got the investigative role of judges, right? Yeah. There's more potential for capriciousness and unpredictability than you would in maybe a more code-based um, system. Yeah. Well, there are, I think, if we look at different uh, legal disciplines, uh, whether it's commercial, it's criminal, the technology will be quicker in some of them, and it will take much more time for, for it to be developed in other fields. So it will be, uh, it will be expediting differently. And there are fields like, for example, if we see what's the most popular tool for contract analysis, it would be lease contract analysis. Why is that? Because in most of the cases, these contracts are pretty standardized. It's, it's, it's a common um, uh, formula in, in global terms. So you can use it in different countries and use the same, the similar data and the same engine. So that's why the contract an analysis systems, they move in a quicker way with the lease contract analysis. And it's, and it's valuable. I mean, an abstract question like, is this lease favoring um, which side can be quite well answered by a machine, you know, using an analytical technique. Yeah, but that's, that's what I was a bit missing in the, in the solutions that are on the market. We are currently working with, with one of the global leaders for AI, and we wanted to go a bit further with contract analysis uh, to provide some kind of a judgment to the user. So what we are doing there, we are, we are allowing uh, the client to learn whether certain clauses are so-called market standard or not market standard. 
and on whether they are more beneficiary for the landlord or for the tenant or whether they are neutral and obviously other functionalities like what is missing what is the, the red flag clause so we are trying to enhance the experience of a user yes so it's not necessarily the lawyer who will be using the system it might be some procurement specialist office manager they can upload the lease agreement and see okay there are some clauses missing i need to check it out with our lawyers or, or this is clearly an agreement that is not favorable for us yes so it's going to be a, a great tool giving this initial legal service for non-lawyers. And, and this is a great example of where if you can um, democratize access to legal information, it actually can generate work you know, for the legal profession because someone who may never have thought about questioning their lease, if they get some red flags from an automated system, will then go to and see a lawyer and ask what they can do about it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this, is, this is definitely something that can increase demand for, for the services. You know, if you if you sort of uh, had an opportunity to start uh, a very disruptive algorithmic law firm and you had unlimited access to technology and funding to do so, what would be the, the pieces of the of the legal tech stack you'd put together? Well, I would I would start that uh, with with uh, what I like most currently. What I think is is, is a great initiative is the standards uh, advancement for the legal industry alliance and what they do they are publishing the legal meta specification standards the recent revision was i think july or august this year and what it does what they are doing they're decomposing the legal work and introducing certain standards the standards that everybody can use because it's open and this is going to facilitate uh, procurement departments when when deciding to purchase what legal service as well as it will enable more of uh, introducing more coding nature to the legal uh, industry. And having this, the decomposing our industry, decomposing contracts and, and, and uh, these legal pieces, then you can build some solutions. So you can, you can use it for contract analysis, contract abstraction. Mm. This is already happening, but I think it has a lot of potential to be developed there. Then obviously some of it can be used in a discovery, which is on a, which has been on the market for four years. Then it's a prediction a technology, and it would be also expertise automation. And I think these all these fields have a great uh, future. And if you ask me, what would you invest in? I would invest in in in, in these fields. Yeah, obviously interacting with the clients and with the industry was actually desired most yes and based on this we would be dispatching the solutions that are tyler made yeah the uh you know in, in that account and you start to decompose contracts and the legal system i mean you start to really see law for what it is which is code yeah it, it, it's like lines of code and then maybe it's a stretch to then see lawyers as hackers but <laughs> but, but 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 definitely you know there's a there's an element that we that there is a there is sort of a, a permanent regulatory code-like aspect to law, but there's also the bit that's changing with social priorities, 
you know, which you often see in common law systems, you know, with, with judgments. But even that is a form of code as well that's constantly evolving. Yeah, the, the, I think there are certain fields difficult to be coded. Yeah. So we might assume that these fields will be left for some time for the human beings to decide. But still, there are some 90% that you can perfectly code. One reason which of those? Which, which do you think will be the ones that are difficult to code? Well, especially if you talk about fairness, yeah, that's uh, how to code machine to decide on fairness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult. Obviously, let's say we'll have 10,000 cases decided by the courts when the fairness is, is uh, somehow commented. Out of it, we might be trying then to teach the machine how to how to read the fairness and then decide on it. But it's, it's still going like to be reasonable. It's still going to be uh, difficult. So um, I must say I'm fascinated with this 90% that you can be coding, actually. And well, there is a recent release of a software called uh, Firelex. And this is actually contract automation tool. And this is allowing lawyers, this is by lawyers for lawyers, that's how it's called. And this allows lawyers some coding uh, activity. So it shows you that some of the lawyers might be changing their functionalities. These are not just the fancy lawyers working with the clients, but these will be lawyers with a more IT twist. What does this ultimately do to the structure of the legal profession, the size of firms, and even the way you build? Because, you know, in, in, in the past, the way lawyers build is complex problems require lots of people and hours, and, and, and that's how you get to your billings. But now if you're using platforms and technologies, the number of human hours doesn't really become the major driver of value. Yeah, just look at the, we need to look at the alternative service providers. If we look, for example, in the UK, the Riverview, it has been just acquired by EY. This is the alternative legal service provider. So it means this is, and obviously they are using a lot of technology, so it shows you how disruptive it is. You have a lot of uh, uh, alternative service providers that are now subject to IPOs. So they, are, they were listed, yes. And it shows you, you know, the traditional law firms, this was rather difficult to be listed. Yes. Right. And now you have uh, the, the crew of alternative legal service providers that are listed, they have resources, they have financing, also from the PE. Just a recent deal, I think a week ago, the Axiom, they have like 2000 specialists, they were invested by Permira, which is a private equity fund, yes. And they decided not to go public because they received some new funding to expand further. So, but they were valuation multiple based on leverage from technology rather than just people and man hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, you need to have technology, you need to have products that are being sold basically. So it cannot be based solely on a human being. So is it disruptive? It certainly is, <laughs> yes. I'm not saying that there is no place for traditional law firms because they are, doing fine and it's just just uh, I would say it's it's also interesting that this Axiom Permira deal you have like five or six traditional law firms working on the deal itself yeah well, so you, so it shows you there is a place for traditional this law trend, firms. not just in law but in in many aspects of professional services whether it's management consulting or investment banking I mean even you know Goldman Sachs is investing a lot to see if they can automate more of the IPO process. You know, so this, uh, this idea that eventually you may have a core of 
essentially partners and relationship people. And a lot of the heavy lifting and analytics then gets done by platforms. Yeah. I, I recently had a chat with uh, uh, CEOs of different banks in, in the region. And I asked them, you know, the technology in your sector is just frightening. You, you, your brands might be out of business because what the young recipients of uh, financial services want, they just want to have this, this app experience on their mobile. They want to pay for something, transfer the money. They don't care which brand is behind it. And what they said is they said, yes, this, the technology is making a lot of change in our market. So what is important for us right now? is just relationship. Hmm. So I think it's still a legal business, yeah? Even if the technology go forward, the relationship will be of key importance. Yeah, and and I guess people sort of want that um, consigliere or, you know, or concierge, you know, to a variety of legal services and technologies, but, but that human connection will probably become more, not less important. Yeah, exactly. So this conciliary approach, as you mentioned, is going to be for utmost importance. So if you want to grow business, your legal business, pay attention to your relations and train your team, train your, let's say, culture. Well, the, the team the team is a bit of a challenge. I mean, one of the, the stories I wrote about the start of my book was why I decided not to become a lawyer. And that's because I was horrified at the amount of manual non-technological work that was demanded of first-year associates. And I just thought this is, it's almost like they're trying to wean out the people that aren't prepared to suffer in order to get to the top of the pyramid. But with all of these technologies we've just been talking about, they're eliminating a lot of the grunt work that you used to get first year and first and second year associates to do. So what becomes the entry path into a career at law when the bottom of the pyramid's work has been decimated? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> and now, well, uh, the most qualified jobs will be the least affected. That's, that's obvious. So if we go down the chain, then uh, actually we might find jobs that are not feasible or not present anymore for the young lawyers. So one would say they need to either requalify to be more of a coding nature lawyer or they will be need to uh, or they will need to be trained longer yes in order to have a proper qualifications to make more sophisticated stuff all right but then who will pay for you know how come you can pay for 10 years of studies legal studies let's yeah. say it, it it sounds quite challenging yes so what are they going to do are they going to go to the law firms they work for free up to the very moment they will reach the the qualification that is required for for these more sophisticated jobs. Well, th this is still a, a question mark. This is not happening next week or in a month's time, but in a year's time, this is certainly going to be affected. So if I were to advise a young lawyer, yes, you better be interested in this coding activity, get involved in a technology, and uh, you might be also thinking what the client might want in a 10 years time or 20 years time. I read your book and I, lo I loved the examples you made on how you need to perceive uh, the expectations of your clients. Yeah? You need to think what they need in 20 years, 30 years, 10 years. Yes, And based on, on this, you, sell, you shall redefine your business to be fit for this 
10 years, 20 years. Obviously, the duration needs to be reasonable because yeah. you might be that inventive. But at least directionally, you need to know where yeah. it's going. I mean, the only problem with, with, with this is that people that are drawn to coding, um, just like in the finance industry, they may go in and become quants. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be great relationship people. That's true. So, That's so, true. so we, we, may, we may end up with like legal quants but we still need to find a way of bringing people that are great relationship people in through the profession. But then it might be purely a sales department. <laughs> so you might have a coding department, which is your production site, right. yes. And then you have a sales right. team, because marketing you, you, team, you, you actually, team. You've actually decomposed the Yeah, the, you have the different teams, yeah. Yeah. Basically, obviously the marketing people and uh, they would need to know perfectly what's on your production side and they need to know the product well. But this is the same as any other industry. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and as we we're talking about before, I mean, even the client acquisition may be decomposed. Aspects of it are now coming through digital channels, people that are accessing you through, you know, apps or platforms or AI services. They're not being one at the country club. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when you when you start to to think about some of the, uh, I guess the broader ethical issues that we're now facing, do you see that the rise of the algorithmic age and you know more algorithms and AI is it going to generate more complex legal issues? You know, for your clients. Well, you would you will need to have algorithmic lawyers uh, along the line, yeah, because then the lawyers who are able to advise actually on algorithms and not purely on the legal regulations. Yeah. So, because if, if we go further, let's say we have smart contracting. Yeah, that blockchain. We have, and, yeah, yeah, blockchain. So we use corporate blockchain. We, then we have, let's say, very automatic uh, court uh, decision making. Uh, so then you will need specialists who advise you on how actually this algorithm works, yeah? How to ensure that I'm ultimately successful. But in order to do so, the pure knowledge of the regulations is not enough. You need to know how the algorithm works. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you think about a future where you, you actually are planning M&A of blockchain-based companies, uh, I mean, you will need legal regulatory knowledge but you'll also need programming and algorithmic knowledge to do that. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, some say that if you knew how, the, uh, how your AI works, it means it wouldn't be necessary. So it must be some magic behind it. And, and you cannot learn uh, all the mechanics of it. Yes, but, but still, the more you know, the better you will be able to advise your clients. Well, we will have AIs running defense on corporate takeovers as well, presumably, right? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's so true. So it will be more and more of, of this. So I think the, the more and more technical knowledge will be required. What do you think, you know, besides knowledge, would need to be the, I guess, the mindset and capabilities of the, you know, the cultural change inside law firms. I mean, I, I remember one of the things that always I struggled with was just how traditional and conservative and, you know, I, I guess hierarchical traditional law firms are. What does the law firm of the future look like from a well, cultural perspective? The first thing needs to be mentioned that lawyers in majority are technology agnostic and they, they don't like technology. Maybe, I, maybe I even, even technology atheists. I even have some, <laughs> some lawyers now firmly say, 
Even Mike might disagree, but I will not be substituted by machines in the 20 years to come. So it just shows you the, 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 the approach. And if we compare legal industry to, let's say, automotive, it's like we are in a situation that we use some technology. It's like you are you can you can control your speed automatically. You can make your par- car park automatically, and these are the tools we are using. It is the same in the legal industry, I would say. So we are now at this stage. But if you look at automotive, so just entering the car, autonomous car, and moving from place A to B without a driver. For the legal industry, we are certainly not there. We are certainly not there. And coming back to your question, yes, how to change this agnostic, uh, technology agnostic culture, yes, in order to be technology driven, well, that's a great challenge, yes. So if, if you know the answer, I'd be really eager to, to, to hear this, yeah. But I, I think that now the changing the culture and uh, actually empowering some of the members of different departments in order to work on this technology solutions is of a key importance. So you need to you need to change your culture. You need to also allow people to fail because out of your 10 technology products, let's say legal tech product, yeah, it might turn out that seven of these are users. People don't want to use them or clients, you know, say that uh, they have different solutions. So you need to allow people to fail. You need to also ensure that you have proper resources and proper management culture. It means that sometimes you will need to employ more and more operational people uh, than lawyers. So it might be the case that you'll have on your team much more uh, non-lawyers than lawyers who will help you how to drive this change. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. Thank you.